Welcome back to the Anglo Boer War podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 135, and we return to the delicate first round of peace talks going on in Pretoria. While the Boer political and military leadership were huddled around a table in Lord Kitchener's office, far off in the Northern Cape, General Smuts and his commander had defeated the British at three small towns through the months of March and April 1902. We've heard about the assaults on Springbok, Kalbinia, and O'Keep. Smuts was now waiting patiently for the British to send their expected relief column via the Atlantic town of Port Nolith to relieve O'Keep. Smuts wanted to then head directly to Cape Town to catch the British unprepared. It was audacious, but typically Smuts. He was not aware that he had literally missed the train to Pretoria and that peace talks were underway. Smuts had ordered Van Deventer and his commander to head 20 miles west and to monitor the main railway line from Port Nolith to O'Keep which was an important copper mining area. But 760 miles to the northeast in Kitchener's office, there was a slow change to the overall tenure of the discussions. Remember how the Boers had left the topic of the Boer Republic's independence off their list of demands. In their view, it was non-negotiable. On the other hand, the British had expected the Boers to return to the negotiating table with the understanding that independence was impossible. Things became extremely complicated when Lord Milner joined Kitchener two days after talks began, and that was on the 13th of April. He arrived because Milner wanted unconditional surrender and he didn't mind a few more months of war in order to subjugate the Boers completely. This was not the view of Kitchener and his aide Ian Hamilton. At the same time, the British standpoint was unequivocal. There would be no reversal of the annexation of the Republic of the Transvaal and the Orange Free State. Everything else, however, was open to discussion. President Steyn of the Free State was particularly stern in his opposition to the British position of a fait accompli, and in discussions with acting President Berger and General Louis Botha of the Transvaal, Steyn managed to convince them of a last line of defence. The overall policy dominating Boer politics was the concept of a democratic decision taken by all the people. They needed to poll the folk for their point of view. Under the Boer constitution, argued Steyn, Neither of the Boer governments was empowered to authorise surrender without permission. Lord Kitchener was taken aback. Nevertheless, he drew up a telegram which he duly dispatched to the British Secretary of State for War on April 14, 1902, and part of it read, A difficulty has arisen in connection with the negotiations. The representatives declare that constitutionally they are not entitled to discuss terms which are based on the surrender of their independence, as the burghers alone can agree to such a basis. Lord Milner was utterly against Kitchener's next suggestion. If, however, His Majesty's government can propose terms by which their independence shall be subsequently given back to them, the representatives will lay such conditions before the people without giving expression to their own opinion. Well, the reply was duly dispatched on the 16th of April, and His Majesty's government was gobsmacked, was the gist of the Secretary of State for War, Sir John Broderick's message. With great astonishment, we received the message from the Boer leaders. The meeting was arranged in accordance with their desires, it read. We were justified in believing that the Boer representatives had abandoned all idea of independence, and that they would make terms for the surrender of forces still in the felt. The British government was also trying to wrap this war up as quickly as Kitchener, but their patience was wearing thin. The secretary stated that 
Further sacrifices involved by the refusal would justify us in dictating harder terms. We are still prepared, in the hope of lasting peace and reconciliation, to accept a general surrender in the spirit of that offer. As I explained last week, I was a journalist for a radio station called 702 in South Africa during the Convention for a Democratic South Africa, or CODESA, which began on December 21, 1991. The language used here in 1902 Reconciliation, peace, negotiated solution, mutual agreement were all part of the lexicon of the 1991 discussions. Almost a century later, and there the African National Congress and National Party sat down with other smaller parties and interest groups to formulate what a new South Africa would look like. It so happens I have on my desk here a book published in 1902 called The New South Africa, authored by W. Blieloch. In his introduction, he writes... At last, the Boer leaders appear to see that the interests of their race demand a cessation of hostilities, and the discussion of peace with their attenuated commandos has culminated in the general conference in Ferenichen. Of course, we're going to hear about that peace conference in upcoming episodes, where the nitty-gritty of the future of the country was to be thrashed out. But I found it ironic that these positions were almost paralleled later in 1991. Without putting too fine a spin on the story, the war in South Africa was known as the struggle by the ANC, the Boers, in their war against the British Empire, Pax Britannica, had also called it a struggle. The ANC were struggling against white South Africa, epitomized by the Boers, and yet a hundred years before, the Boers had been struggling against the very epitome of white elitism, or at least European elitism, the British. And after both peace conferences, suddenly we knew our land as the new South Africa. I wonder how many more of these we will see. Back to 1902. Kitchener gave the response from Broderick to President Steyn and Berger. Sitting alongside the two presidents were their generals, and Christian de Wett was unimpressed. President Steyn pointed out emphatically that it lay beyond our right to decide and conclude anything that would endanger the two republics. For this reason, we asked if we might consult the people. Steyn also said there should be a ceasefire, so that members of the government in Europe, particularly Paul Kruger, or at least Leitz, may travel to South Africa to be part of the negotiations. Kitchener rejected the ceasefire straight away and immediately scotched the idea of any representatives in Europe being allowed time to travel. This had to be done quickly, he said. But he would allow the Boers to organize and hold a referendum. This appears strange to our modern ears. How can a referendum be held in the middle of a war without a ceasefire? Yet both parties in Pretoria accepted these terms. Then Milner suggested that the Boer prisoners of war should be part of any referendum. Stain fired back. How can the prisoners of war be consulted? They are civilly dead. Imagine, he said, if they voted to continue the war and the Boer fighters wanted to stop. What then? Both Kitchener and Milner appeared to appreciate the irony and shelved the idea. How would this referendum be managed then? This could hardly be run where civilians could all vote. There was a war on. It wouldn't work. So the plan that was devised was fairly simple. Thirty Boer delegates from the former republics would be elected among the commandos who were still active in the field, and these would travel to the final round of peace talks. The referendum would be held at the border village of Frenichung on the banks of the Vaal River on the 15th of May 1902. Following this, final peace talks with the British would hopefully begin. Ferenichung is symbolic, as its name means association or union. 
and refers to the coal mining association that owned the town when it was founded in 1892. Once more, the value of a commodity and the war collide. The date was set, the details almost finalised. As we'll hear next week, General Smuts, who'd been left out of the initial negotiations, would have to travel all the way from the Northern Cape to the peace table in the Transvaal by that date. It was a month hence, but this was before aviation. How would he make it? Later, Denise Raitz, our intrepid narrator throughout the series, would suggest darkly that the British purposefully left Smuts out of the first round in order to ensure that the Transvaalers present would not be given false hope by some of his successes in the Northern Cape. But it's clear there was just no way he would have made it to Pretoria on 11th to 16th of April. While the delegates debated inside Kitchener's office for these few days in Pretoria, all manner of excitement had been generated by the Falks heroes pitching up from their two-year battle against the English. One of the most excited was the Boer spy who I've returned to regularly over the last two years, Johanna van Varmelua. Remember those hidden letters written in code and invisible ink being smuggled to the Netherlands in cases and sneaky envelopes? Well, on the 12th of April, she'd written in one of her three diaries, We are all in a great state of excitement, and everyone rushed out to try and catch a glimpse of the peace delegates. 12th of April, the start in the peace process proper, was also the birthday of General Coeurs de la Rey's mother, Adriana de la Rey. She turned 84 years old. So Johanna van Warmelo joined the throngs of Boers trying to get permission to meet with their beloved leaders, but she was repeatedly disappointed, although managed to spot a few. While our generals were there, we were unfit for anything and just wanted to live on the streets in order to catch a glimpse of them, she writes. We were unusually fortunate and were greeted several times by Stein and the vet, and once General Boerta took off his hat to us from the balcony and kissed both his hands to us. That drove the young woman into a frenzy. We were simply crazy with delight, and it is astonishing the way a salute from a Boer can affect a patriotic mind, she bubbled. But the house where the representatives were staying, called Parkzicht, and owned by Karl Roet, was well guarded by Tommies, who ordered us to move on whenever we stopped for a moment to wave our handkerchiefs. At least, Mrs. De La Rey spent time with her son, Kuis, and on her birthday, too. The British were not allowing anyone else, other than close relatives, to meet with the generals. By the 18th of April, the Boer political and military leadership had left. They now had the difficult task of selecting 30 delegates to attend the Vereniging Peace Conference on the 15th of May. And they had to get General Smuts back from his Northern Cape desert backwater. Would this even be possible? General Christian de Wett wasn't concerning himself with that question. He was far more interested in rushing off to the Free State to select his crop of delegates. On the 18th of April, Commandant General Louis Boerter, General de la Rey and I left Pretoria, provided with a safe conduct for ourselves and for anyone whom we should appoint, and proceeded to our different commanders. This is one of the reasons why the Boer War is regarded as the last of its type. After this, in world wars, no army would have permitted its enemy generals and the most important ones at that time and space to travel about in captured territory talking to their own armies. I went first to the burghers of Freda at Prankop, where I met General Vessel Vessels with his commandos on 22nd April. Vessel Vessels and his men were in a desperate condition. 
They had nothing to eat but what we here in South Africa call pup and flace, or maize meal and meat. Now, I happen to love pup and flace, but living without fruit and vegetables had turned the men into wizened and unhealthy soldiers. Worse, Bessel said even the pup and flace was about to run out. Notwithstanding this, the burghers decided to a man that they would not be satisfied with anything less than independence, and that if the English would not accede to this, they would continue to fight. That was grandiose, to put it mildly. Vessel and his men had been doing very little over the past few months. They were hardly fighting in the traditional sense of the word. It was more psychological battle now. Vessel was chosen as chairman, Peter Schravesender, as secretary, with representatives to include Commandants A. Ross, Romanus Boerter, and Louis Boerter, son of Philip, and no relation to the more famous General Louis Boerter. De Vett travelled to Drupfontein near Bethlehem on the 26th of April, we met Commandant Franz Jacobs, as well as Mears and Brevet. Here, a J.H. Nodier was made chairman, and Landros J.H.B. Vessel's secretary, and Franz Jacobs and Brevet were to be the representatives. And thus, the meetings continued for the next two weeks throughout the Free State, with the vet tirelessly noting the lists of representatives, constantly repeating that none wanted peace without independence. The vet had been fretting about one major challenge, here he was, collecting the names of his most effective officers and leaders who were about to head off to peace talks in Vereniging. The last time that happened, on the 11th of April, remember how Hamilton, Rawlinson and Kekovich had used the gap in leadership to go boer hunting, which led to the Commandant Portgieter's demise at Rodeval. It had been agreed with Lord Kitchener that if the chief officers of a commander were chosen as representatives, then there would be an armistice between this commander and the English during the time the officers were absent at the meeting in Vereniging. All that Kitchener demanded was to know the date that these men would depart for the Vaal River border town. De Vett had travelled to Frieda, Harrismith, Bethlehem, Friesburg and other smaller towns and the Boers had made their decision. De Vett duly sent a telegram to Kitchener which read, To His Excellency, Headquarters, Pretoria. I have decided that all the representatives shall leave their different commandos on the 11th of May, and therefore, in accordance with our mutual agreement, I shall expect an armistice to be granted to the different commanders from that date. Kitchener replied that he accepted the message and demands, and noting the date as the 11th of May, and added, I shall also be glad if you would send an officer at least two days before the meeting in order to let me know about the number. How very civilized, this telegram exchange, I thought. While the soldiers were civil, the civilians were suffering. The concentration camps continued to claim thousands of black and white lives. By March 1902, Captain Wilson Fox of the Native Refugee Department had informed Prime Minister Chamberlain in London that only 800 deaths in January, 550 in February and 400 in March had been registered in the black camps. We know that this was incorrect. There were more. However, Captain Fox continued, The natives are generally content, he said, and the rate appears high, but under the circumstances I think it can be scarcely called excessive. Ultimately, over 30,000 whites and initially in an estimated 25,000 black women and children died in the 50 and 64 camps respectively. That was out of a total in both camps, of 285,000 people. You know the old story about stats, 
how many people died, how many is too many, who gets to tell their side afterwards. We know that the number of blacks who died is closer to 36,000. We know the British had lost 21,144 soldiers killed in action. The Boers just under 10,000. I will return to these numbers later, but imagine if you can the period where the total number of Boers killed or wounded or dead in concentration camps was around 10% of their entire population. I know in this time of pandemic, these numbers can appear insignificant without a percentage to make sense. But the total population in South Africa in 1902 was around 4 million. So you see, it's about the total percentage, and it's also about utter destruction. Rebuilding was still months away. The upcoming Fruinachung meeting would see negotiations drag on from the 15th to the end of May. Yes, peace was on its way, and so too was General Jan Smuts. We will take a boat journey with the General and his Chief Scout, Denise Reitz, next week. Until then, a few words of thanks to Thomas in Florida, who donated a significant amount to help support this podcast series. I look forward one day to meeting you, such a generous man. And to Anthony in Bergen in Norway, who says he's been telling everyone he knows about the podcast, and now I know why the listenership is so high there. Thank you. You're doing a great job. And Gustav in Pretoria, who has stayed with me through thick and thin in this series, a huge thanks. And to Connor from County Carlo in Ireland, you're right. Someone should really generate a proper movie about this whole Boer War saga. As I said to you, I'm working on one and a few ideas on a second, but the pressures of the pandemic and other headwinds means it's taking some time. But please rate the podcast on iTunes if you can. And if you want to chat, direct message me on Twitter at Des Latham or send me an email through my website, abwarpodcast.com. Masks on, hands washed, social distancing secured. Until next week, Fuspate. Goodbye. <laughs> Daar onder in die mil is by die groen door een boom, daar woon my sari mare. Daar onder in die mil is by die groen door een boom,